Totally Football Show. Today, Chelsea failed to turn up at Etihad, but hope for one at Barcelona. Brighton Rock, Chris Hooten is Don Tooten, while Gunners now have rest of Lee Hooten. More L's in a row than a Welsh railway station. There's women's football, She Believes Cup, She Leaves in Iran. Why Chinese VAR is minging, Spurs Juve talk, Europa League, remembering Tromso Chelsea, important news about stripes and more in this Totally Football Show. On board today's Totally Football Show, we have Tom Williams. Hello, James. Hi, Tom. Nice to see you back. Ian Irving's back with us. Hi, James. And also Kelly Cates. Morning. Lovely to see you, Kelly. Uh, First thing to say is that this weekend changed dramatically halfway through Sunday morning when we all heard the news about Davide Astori of uh, Fiorentina, which is absolutely shocking news. Uh, Listener Capel saying it would be great if you could spend some time talking about... uh, David's career and how much of a fantastic role model he was on and off the pitch. He's hoping Fiorentina can bounce back. But um, we'll see what happens with Fiorentina. I never, I must admit, I never met David story, but and you always hear a lot of people, a lot of outpourings of respect and and grief and these kind of occasions. But it's remarkable the kind of responses that uh, he and his the way he lived his life uh, seems to have elicited from from pretty much everyone in, in football who had any contact with him. And it, so many people did. A uh, really terrible story. And I think Antonio Conte is somebody who actually managed Astori. And, and that's obviously a huge story, what happened with Chelsea or what didn't happen with Chelsea at Man City on Sunday. But uh, looking at his face on the sidelines, it's hard not to think that there must have been a lot of things going through his mind. And, uh, of course, our best wishes to his family, all his former teammates and, and everyone who's missing David has story today. When you talk about Conte, he actually asked to do a, a separate interview on a story. He wanted to talk about him. He he said, I, "I don't. I want to be asked about him. I want to pay my respects publicly, and I want to do it separately from the the pre match interview." So he 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 clearly felt it, and you could see his emotion when he was when he was being interviewed about it. He didn't do a pre match interview in the end. He he just wanted to talk about a story, which I you know he can completely understand under the circumstances. There was also. Um, Marcus Alonso, who who sort of the the Chelsea team had, had pointed out, was was pretty upset. He'd been his teammate at Fiorentina, Zappa Costa, of course, who played with him too. So you know, it it, it was strange actually going to the Etihad on Sunday and hearing the news uh, because although it's a player obviously in a different country, this is the way football is. It affects every team almost in some ways because of the way that that these networks come out. But what what really sort of touched me about the story was. The types of things that that people were saying about him, because like you, I haven't met him, um, but it wasn't just the sort of devastated about the news, shocked by the news, whatever that. that there was sort of these these sort of very personal stories about the type of person he was, the character he was. I think uh, Benucci's was the one that really sort of hit home with me, speaking about his smile on and off the pitch and that smile revealing this sort of inner happiness and an inner sort of virtue of the man as well, which was was lovely to read, but but desperately sad at the same time. Mm. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, Astori and his, his career and and the gap he leaves on uh, Wednesday when we do Golazzo with uh, Gabriele and, and James Horncastle. We'll do a separate thing ourselves, I guess, for our look at Chelsea Man City, which we'll talk about after this. So Sunday saw Man City beating Chelsea 1-0, a result which makes the top four look a little bit more settled than it had been. Five-point gap now between Spurs in fourth place and Antonio Conte's team down there in fifth. This following, as I say, a a 1-0 draw that effectively was a bit like if they gave a football game, but one team didn't turn up. Yeah, a very curious game. Um, Man City set a new record for completed passes uh, in the Opta statistics era. What was really striking about the game when you watched it was that it almost looked as if that's what City were trying to do because they had so much time and space on the ball. There were a couple of sequences in the second half in particular where you'd have a couple of City players and they'd knock the ball between each other five or six times Mm. and Chelsea was sitting so deep that they could do that. Zinchenko and and Gundogan, I think, Mm. spent about 80 minutes of the 90 just passing it back and forth between themselves. Mm. I've seen games in which, obviously, teams went out very defensively against Man City, but for the champions to do it, particularly after they've tried that tactic before, and it almost seemed like uh, Conte's instructions had been, if you do get the ball, just make sure you give it back to them before you offend anybody. (laughs) The, The first half was fine for me. I've had this conversation um, on the show before. The first half was fine. I've I've rarely seen teams 
uh, caused City so many problems in terms of creating chances in the first half. And in terms of Man City creating chances. Yeah, yeah. And and Chelsea Chelsea didn't have a shot on. No, Chelsea created absolutely zero, which which is an issue, of course. But in terms of the first half at the Etihad Stadium in this sort of match uh, against City in this sort of form and the the way that they've played this season, I'm all right with that because I I sort of feel like to actually be able to beat City with the tools that Chelsea had, that to me seems like the most logical thing to do. I know it's not the most entertaining in any way, shape or form, but actually trying to stop them as as well as you can in that first half, I'm all right with. I don't mind that you've not had a shot on target and all this in a first half, but when that goal goes in, what, 35 seconds into the second half, that's when I'd expect a reaction. That's when I'd expect something different. And even with all the changes that were made in the second half... Mm. Much later on. Much, much later on. Far too late, really. Um, It still didn't feel like it was a different approach. Now, Mm. if it was still nil-nil with sort of 10 minutes to go and and you've stifled City and you've got to a point in the game where you think, right, now we can can start to counter-punch a bit more, I'd sort of understand that. I know it's the champions and I know it's... It's not really what we want to watch. But I can understand why a manager like Conte, with with the tools that Chelsea have got, missing a really influential player in, in N'Golo Kante as well, I could understand why he would set up that way. Um, but to not react, for me, probably is, is, is more of an issue, really. Man City were missing Fernandinho because it's in a similar role, yeah. but Gundogan deputising for him uh, quite brilliantly. Uh, we mentioned some of the stats. Gundogan, indeed, completing more passes on his own against Chelsea than Stoke did against Southampton in that entire match. Uh, another great one, this one from Duncan Alexander. Although, of course, these stats are, are rather asterisked by you know the nature of the, of the opposition. City completed one more pass today than Phil Jones has all season. Kelly, what did you make of it? Well, the, the other point to make about Chelsea is that, yes, they're the champions, but they're in fifth, and they're quite a clear fifth. You know, they're five points off Tottenham now, so it's not like they're going in as, as strong defending champions. Plus, their top goal, or their, the man who's supposed to be their main goal scorer, Morata, is, is out of form, wasn't even picked for the game, they're not playing with him, it's not, it doesn't really work. And he went for something quite similar uh, to the game in, in Europe, but it, it, just, it just didn't come off for them. And I think what Conte said afterwards is you, you have to use your head in situations like that. The, the fact that Morata isn't playing well and isn't scoring is, is an issue. The fact that they don't have backup for him is, is another issue. But I think they're deeper than just how Conte chose to approach this game against Man City. But they, but they do have backup Olivier Giroud, no? Quite right, yes. <laughs> and I was amazed that they didn't go for him yeah. right from the beginning, James, weren't you? I'm, I'm, I was just a bit staggered. I mean, I know what you're saying, Ian, about the first half was fine, they limited Man City, and it was a bit like what, say, Mourinho did with Inter against Barcelona, and that worked. Mm. But I think there, there were two things. One, as you say, once you go a goal down, the entire logic of it just evaporates. Mm. Two, when you do get the ball, you then have to hit people on the break, not just pump the ball wildly over Eden Hazard's head which is effectively what they did. I don't know if Hazard, how many touches he had in the Man City half. Well, he but... said they could have played for three hours and he wouldn't have had a touch of the ball. Yeah. That's, what, that's what he said. And he... So he was happy with the approach as well. Yeah. Right? I, I had the feeling. <laughs> you could tell that when he came off. Yeah. I that had the feeling. time to bring, to bring him off and bring Morata on in 89 minutes, 90 minutes. Yeah. So this is Eden Hazard after the game. I had the feeling that I'd run, but that I hadn't played a game of football. That's a pity. We could have played on for three hours, but I wouldn't touch a ball if it only went better at the end of the game. So, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound like he's terribly happy about all this. Just, the just the other moment, thing I was going to say... What do we want Chelsea to do? I don't see how they can get anything positive out of an approach like that. If they were going to use the ball when they got it mm. properly, then yes, there, there is an argument for that. But equally, you have to say that the teams that have beaten Man City this season... You've seen a lot of teams try that and mm. it's failed, including Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Mm. Not long ago. Yep. The teams that have beaten Man City this season are who? Shakhtar Donetsk, Liverpool and Wigan, who are certainly not in the top four in, in, the, in, in the Premier League right now. And all of them went out and attacked them. Yeah. Bristol City played well against Bristol them as City, well. Bristol City, yeah. Yeah, Bristol City were playing against a weakened City team. Wigan was not completely full strength. It was stronger than the Bristol City game. Liverpool have got the perfect tools in which to play that way against Manchester City. And actually, in a 5-0 defeat at the Etihad, again, something we talked about before, until the the sending off, maybe before Aguero's goal, which I think came just before that. But until that point, Liverpool were pretty impressive, actually, in the, in the way that they were going about things. It was much more of a, an embryonic Manchester City team than the one that we're seeing now as well. But I know it's not what we want to see, and I know, I know how it sounds, but I think playing that way in the first half at the Etihad, given the circumstances that the two teams were going into the game, 
I'm absolutely fine with it. I really don't think that Conte could afford to do much more than what he did. I know that going forward, they ended up creating nothing. And I know that lumping balls over Eden Hazard's head is not a great idea. I think that's the really dismaying thing. I think it hinges on Hazard. If Conte wants to put all of his players behind the ball, then that's fine. But why does he persist in using Hazard as this false nine? You know, if, if he's not going to play with a centre forward, why not put Pedro in the middle? Because Hazard is one of the best players in the world with the ball at his feet, running into space. And he spent the entire game yesterday, you know, trying to back into centre halves and do something that is completely against his, his nature. That's when you start to think, you know, is, is there more to it than, you know, than just going there to, to play for, for a draw? Like, it just seems so stubborn. I, I don't understand why he continues to do it when. You know, Hazard is so diminished in that role and he just brings nothing to the team. When if you played him somewhere else, we all know what he can do. Do you know another thing, though? We're just dismissing City's influence on this football yeah. match as well. We're dismissing City's influence on the way that Chelsea were playing and, and maybe Chelsea were trying to, to break from deep. Maybe they were trying to create these circumstances, but every single time a Chelsea player got a ball in a position to be able to produce mm. this or start this sort of attack, they got absolutely swarmed by City. Right. In some ways, that was the most complete team performance I've seen in the season from City because everything that Guardiola's worked on, everything, not in terms of going forward, scoring goals and all that, but in terms of the way the team functioned, they did everything that, that he's been teaching them all, the, all he these was much all these months. with this performance than he was about the Arsenal performance. He there said they go. got it pretty much 80 to 90% right. He said mm. football is a game of mistakes, but that they, they got it pretty much 80 to 90% I mean, right. He squealed with delight. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. He literally squealed. <laughs> what kind of noise did he make, Tom? It's beyond my range. I don't think I can go that high. Mm. It was like a, it was like a little a little piggy squeal. <laughs> And, and good on like him. Like in deliverance good on or him. something. Yes, without okay. the, so, the stressing. No, it's curious. And that pressing thing, and that ju- it, it was so marked by contrast to what Chelsea did when they didn't have the ball, which was just stand and watch. All right, then. That's probably enough on Man City and Chelsea. You made that half a football match sound pretty interesting, I, I have to say. After this, we'll talk about some more action from the Premier League and Champions League. You can't buy success. Unless, that is, you're backed by Petro Billions. Just ask PSG and Man City. Well, Paddy Power have spent the big bucks buying the best tech brains to make their app better and faster than ever. Check it out for yourself by downloading it for free on Android and iPhone now. 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. Totally Football Show now welcomes James Horncastle. Hey, James. Hey, James. Spurs taking on Juventus at Wembley. On Wednesday, Spurs coming off a comfortable 2-0 win over Huddersfield. Six wins in a row at Wembley now. There's 17 games unbeaten in all competitions, home and away. Looking good, Spurs. How good are Juventus looking, James? Well, they've won 10 in a row in the league, but they didn't look very good against Lazio. Um, they needed a... Well, that was a way at Lazio. It was, who have beaten them twice this season, beat them in the Super Cup, beat them in Turin. Awkward team to play against. And uh, they needed a moment of brilliance from Paolo Dybala to win it. But uh, I think, regardless of the fact that they didn't perform well, the boost that that goal will have given them will be huge because I think it takes all the pressure off Juventus because the title race has completely swung back in their favour. Well, that, the goal that they scored, Paolo Dybala, in the 93rd of 93 minutes... Mm. I'd actually switched off because I went, oh, this is nil-nil. I switched off in the 89th minute and was alarmed to watch well, This is what uh, the Napoli fans did as well. Right. Because they were due to play Roma in the evening game and the news came through that 90 minutes had gone and it was nil-nil and they thought that uh, this was their big opportunity to stretch their leave even further. So there's Six this points. huge roar goes mm. up in the Stadio San Paolo and then they all refresh their smartphones and start crying. Yeah, yeah. Because so. then, of course, the other goals that have really boosted you is the fact that Roma, who'd been on a rotten run, went and put four past Napoli. How big a shock was that result? It was a big shock because uh, Roma had just been beaten by AC Milan and uh, they looked like they were in all kinds of trouble. Mm. Some uh, questions about uh, whether the, the manager's future was in jeopardy and uh, Napoli have been impeccable uh, all year, really. So it was a big shock. So Juventus now one point behind Napoli, but with the game in hand against Atalanta. Mm-hmm. As they approach this match at Wembley, Dybala's back and scoring goals. Blaise Matuidi's back. Higuain, we imagine, will be back. How, how important are those names being available again? 
I think Matuidi's return is probably the most important of all because they really missed him um, in the first leg back in Turin. Um, basically, ever since they lost to Sampdoria at the end of November, they'd moved to this 4-3-3. Um, and Matuidi was a big part of that. Um, he was able to, you know, sort of screen the defence, but also give that kind of propulsion, get them forward. And uh, they changed system when they played Spurs. And while in those first eight minutes, and they went 2-0 up, it looked like it was a masterstroke from Allegri. It was pretty clear that they were overmanned in midfield um, for for long stages of that game. Spurs dominated, so I think Matuidi's um, outmanned in midfield. Exactly. Mm. Uh, so Matuidi's return, I think, is big, and then it will really will be a decision. I think whether he plays Higuain or Dybala. I'm not sure that he will end up playing both. Um, yeah, the performance of Higuain in the first leg was quintessentially Higuain in that he scored two goals, and yet people and at the end of the game were still talking about the chances he missed. Yeah, I think this is. This is a really uh, delicately poised game. It should be fantastic. Do you think? Do you think? Or will Juve sit back and you know Conte style and basically try and <laughs> grab one on the break? Well, remember a couple of years ago, um, they found themselves in a very similar situation against Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich. Um, they drew two-two um, in Turin, and people thought they were done for. And then they went away to Munich and they raced into the lead. Um, they were two 0 up. No one really expected. It should have been three 0 up. Morata had a goal. Uh, ruled out for offside which was incorrect decision from the linesman um, so they can come at you fast and that's certainly what they did in the first leg mm. um, against Spurs um, now you know, I, I expect them to take a little bit more, more of a prudent approach um, in this one um, they have the experience remember they've been to two Champions League finals in three years they've had big wins on the road against Dortmund against Monaco so you know, I would expect them to be a little bit more conservative, um, particularly with Matuidi coming into the team. Um, but uh, yeah, it should be it should be great. Remember, Juventus haven't actually beaten an English side in a knockout competition since 1984. Wow! So you know they've done very well against them in the group stages of, of the Champions League, but not so much in the knockout ties. Nice one, James. Thanks. We'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you again in Wednesday's Golazzo, in which we'll also be looking forward to. Thursday's Milan Arsenal clash. Mm-hmm. Oof. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. James Horncastle just keeps showing up. Tottenham, anyway, looking good for top four, up to second now. Kelly, Liverpool. Yes. Well, they've got a Champions League game as well. They do, Not but quite... it's 5 0 already yeah. from the first leg. Should be. Um... Fairly standard. You'd think it was straightforward, but of course there's always a sense of jeopardy when yeah. you're playing Liverpool. But 5-0 should be reasonably comfortable, don't You'd you think? think? It's all, almost going too well right now for Liverpool. In what way? I don't know. Just uh, clean sheets seem to resolve the goalkeeper issue. Karras looked fantastic against Newcastle. Lost players or players got injured or whatever, but nothing seems to be slowing them down And you're suggesting this is a bad thing because... No, just, it, <laughs> Just you, you have that feeling when things are going too well, you know. Is that no? You don't share that feeling right now. No, because I think um, it's it's not built on sand. I think there've there've been times when it felt like the you know I, I think that that season when Liverpool finished second, it felt like the balloon was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and there was more and more momentum behind it, and it that felt more like a runaway train. Whereas this feels like something that's been a long time in the planning, that is built on solid foundations, that's built on the way that Klopp wants to play football. He has the players brought in who fit into the way he wants to play. And it feels like it's just all very... Although the football isn't sensible, practical football, the reasoning behind it seems to be sensible and practical. Mm. I mean, this is what we expected would happen to Liverpool under Klopp. And it's taken the best part of two and a half years yeah. to, to get there. But this is what he was brought to Anfield to to produce, and now and, and we're now we're seeing it. And, but and, the and like Kelly said, is so impressive. I mm. think when you look at the way that Salah's played, and the, and you look at the um, the, the way ops. that they they were patient bringing in Van Dijk and all those things, they just it it just seems to be so clear mm. what they're trying to do, and they they kind of don't seem to be knocked off course by it and of course Naby Keita still to come in as well over the Crikey. summer are they title contenders next year Kelly it depends I mean you can't see past Manchester City again you can, can only you see Pep Guardiola improving that City side but I think they I think they could definitely run them closer next season whether or not they can they can mount a serious challenge and actually maybe go for the title I don't know that might be that might be a, a, a leap too far in my imagination, but um, definitely closer. I mean, yeah. 18, can't, can't get much wider than 18 points, really, yeah. can you? It's going to take a Liverpool team with 
a magnificent amount of character to win the league. You saw uh, under Rodgers and the team that they had then how close they came, but it, it was the weight of the expectation. I mean, you literally had fans lining the streets outside Anfield, welcoming the coach to the game. And it, it seemed for a while like that was helping Liverpool, but then as soon as there was an element of doubt, it seemed to go against them. Now, See, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think what cost Liverpool that season was... Um, a lack of caution in uh, in their tactics against Chelsea. Against Chelsea, against Palace. Palace I think, yeah, yeah, I think, I think there were, yeah, I think, I don't, I don't think it. I think the weight of expectation was there. The weight of expectation will be there. But I, I, and I, and I, I take your point that I, I think it had an effect. But I, but I don't think that was it. I think it was trying to go for too many goals against Crystal Palace in order to, to, to close down on the goal difference. And I think it was the, the tactical approach against Chelsea where they could have been really cautious and, and that would have helped them. I, I don't think... I'm not saying the weight of expectation didn't have any effect on, on the players, particularly you know the, the Liverpool players and the ones who've been there a long time, but I don't think that's what cost them the title. I, I think Liverpool actually harnessed that momentum, that emotion quite well. You know, Liverpool is a club that is just cloaked in emotion and you cannot ignore that. And, you know, Brendan Rodgers gets teased because of the way he talks, but I, I think he was the right manager in that situation. And I genuinely think that if it wasn't for Gerard slipping, I think Liverpool would have, would have won the league. And I think this idea that they would never have got the result they wanted against Chelsea because there was too much emotion, because they went too gung-ho. That team had only found a way of playing successfully in around the February of that season. They only knew how to play with the handbrake off. They'd shown nothing to suggest that they could suddenly produce a very calculated, um, cautious performance. And I, th- I think if Gerard doesn't lose his footing at that point, I-, I think they'd win the league and I think we'd all reflect on a you know a glorious season. Does Gerard losing his footing not have something to do with the emotion that was in? I was about to say, I, I realised that people aren't agreeing with me and that's fine, that's that's no, no problem at all. And, and actually, you know... Um, I sort of felt like that was a re- that was part of the reason why the emotion was too much because they were gung ho against Crystal Palace, they were gung ho against Chelsea. It was this sort of like almost desperation played. to it. That yeah. wasn't a change from before the pressure. That's just how they played. No, no, uh, to- totally. But when you do get to that point where you, you're just about to make that step over the line, it's almost like the biggest step of all the steps you'll make in the season. Perhaps that is the time just to go. We need to be different here, and rather than get carried away and. And admit, I perhaps I'm completely that's, wrong. But again, that's that's a tactical decision rather than an emotional one. But, and I but, think, but and the... I don't think uh, Brendan Rodgers hadn't been in that that situation. Certainly not under that. But I know he'd done it in the, in the championship. But I, but he hadn't been in that that situation before. And I think I think that it was it was a, a tactical naivety. And I accept your point, Tom, as well. That I think it was um, down to. Uh, I mean, they they couldn't really change the way that they'd played so successfully but I think that there is always room for a bit of adjustment as well and I think trying to hammer Crystal Palace to the point where the Palace players are furious in the dressing room at half time thinking these these players think they can walk all over it. so they come back and they get the draw and then they got um then and 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 the Chelsea game as well just just a little bit of caution a little bit of caution could have made the difference and that's that I think was was the difference that, so at the end of that season again and to bring it back to the Gerard slip again but if, if Gerard doesn't slip they get to nil-nil at half time at that point in the game Chelsea had shown nothing as an attacking force yeah. Chelsea needed that complete freak of nature act of God to get in the lead and then Liverpool weren't able to get back into the game because they were playing against the Jose Mourinho team who shut the game down very successfully scored a late goal on the yeah. counter-attack I, I just think everything pivots on that moment I don't think you can blame Liverpool for the way they approached that game there you go Stevie G it is all your fault my word uh, speaking of trying to get a result at Southers Park, that's what Man United will be doing this evening. When they will take the bat above Liverpool in second place, ahead of their clash next Saturday. Mm. Ooh, hey, it's a big one. Are you going to that, Ian? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be working that one. Yeah, uh, I'm quite looking forward to that. There's been, well, yeah. we've been treated, haven't we, uh, last few weeks in the northwest? We've had United, Chelsea, we've had Manchester City, Chelsea, then. Manchester United, Liverpool. Mm. Um, we'll see what this game produces. Hopefully, it's a little bit more excitement, perhaps, than the other two. Footballers, eh? When they're not out stealing taxis, you can pretty much guarantee they're tucked up safe and sound in bed so they can get their beauty sleep ahead of their next six pointer. Anyway, these days, you don't need to be earning footballer mega bucks to have a great night's kip. The Lisa mattress is available exclusively online and it's delivered direct to your door, compressed in a box. 
Lisa are so sure you'll love their mattress, they'll give you 100 nights to try it out completely risk-free. And here's another reason you can rest easy at night with Lisa. They donate one mattress to charity for every 10 that are sold. Because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can get £80 of your new Lisa mattress. Just head to lisa.co.uk slash totallyfootball and your discount will be automatically applied at the checkout. That's lisa, L-E-E-S-A slash totallyfootball. The Lisa mattress, a better place to sleep, a new way to buy a mattress. She Believes Cup is taking place in the United States. Phil Neville's debut on the Lioness's bench, and boy, hasn't it been going well. It began with a 4-1 win over France. Sunday came a 2-2 draw with the number two side in the world, Germany, meaning that the Lioness is atop of the league, the little group, with the team that's level with them on four points, but behind on goal difference, USA, to come on Thursday in the big decider. Carrie Dunn is the author of Roar of the Lionesses. Carrie, what have you made of it so far? Yeah, um, the first game, the game against France. I mean, France were not good that day, but obviously you can only beat what's put in front of you and all those other cliches. But that was an excellent performance. England were together. They were looking like creating lots and lots of chances, which has been a problem in the She Believes Cup for them in previous years. And yesterday, I mean, against Germany, coming back from a losing position against Germany is not something they've been very good at in recent history. And to still get a point, it's looking pretty good. I'm reasonably confident for at least a decent result against the USA. Oh, fingers crossed. Has Philip Neville stopped being quite so angry now? Um, he has. He's been quite quiet, actually. I mean, he's given his pre-match interviews. He's letting the the players actually do most of the talking, which I think is good. Um, I don't know whether you saw, but he had a famous friend of his there uh, with him yesterday, giving the pre-match team talk. A certain David Beckham. So I think that was a that was quite exciting for the squad as well. One of the interesting things I think about the way that Neville's approached these first few games is I think he's relied more on the experience of his assistants, which is Mo, Mo Marley, who is the interim coach, and Casey Stoney, who's just joined the coaching staff. Obviously, they're the ones with the expertise. They're the ones who know the players. So I think he's kind of just stepping back, letting them get on with it, see what he's got to work with, and then going from there. Very wise. Of course, some of the things that he doesn't have to work with include the captain, Steph Horton, Jordan Nobson, and Karen Carney as well. So it's a tremendously impressive performance that the Lionesses are putting in here without three key players. It really is. And it's one of the things that's been pretty impressive over the past few years is the depth of the squad. There's always been this kind of idea that there's a team of 23. Everyone in the squad plays an equal part, even if they're not actually on the pitch for 90 minutes. And I think and the fact that Siobhan Chamberlain's come, come in to take Karen Barsley's place in goal. Lucy Bronze has taken the armband because both uh, Steph Horton and Jordan Nobbs are out. I think it's been, yeah, it's been really impressive. Nice one. In amongst all this, uh, Carrie, you, you've probably seen uh, the bizarre story going on in Iran where uh, Jenny Infantino turned up at the, 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 uh, the derby game between Estelglal and Persopolis, uh, while simultaneously 35 women were detained by authorities for, for daring to try and attend. Despite the fact that FIFA's own statutes say that any country practising that kind of discrimination should be banned, Infantino's failed to really speak out about this or indeed press the authorities on it. Has there been any kind of comment about that from from the Lionesses or or indeed what's your take on it? I mean I haven't seen any of the players particularly speak out about it. I mean they've been uh, I think they've been quite badly burnt. They've been quite diplomatic uh, about talking in public about anything that might be deemed vaguely controversial now. But um yeah, I was actually really disappointed with Gianni and Fantino. I was at um the women's football conference that they held at FIFA just after he'd been he'd been elected and he said all the right things about women's football and women in football. But to say that, you know, we we've been promised that this is going to be fixed and women will be allowed to attend at some point in the future and that's not good enough it's not good enough for someone in that position who has the capacity to enforce change to use football as this driver for social equality to just step back and just say you've been promised something at some point is just yeah it's not good enough Champions League Man City taking on Basel 4-0 up Basel were last in action on Tuesday losing 2-0 to young boys who are 11 points clear of them in the Swiss Super League. This is as much as you need to know about a game in which City already hold a 4-0 lead, I would suggest. 
Badunkadunk says, that's someone's name, says, uh, who do you believe is going to beat Man City in the Champions League? Do we, do we think anyone's going to beat Cham- uh, Man City in the Champions League? It's not inconceivable. But, Tom, I know it could happen. But when you no. look at City, do you think, oh, yeah, but wait till the Continental sides pick them apart at that? Has anybody looked as good as City in the Champions League so far this season? I would argue not. No, not over the duration of the whole competition. The teams who've had their moments mm. and had big wins. I mean, yeah, I think you'd have City as favourites, but... Liverpool you know, could beat them. Have yeah. beaten them. Mm. Mm. But then again, you look at, you know, the Champions League does strange things to clubs mm. and clubs who look like they're about to just steamroller everybody in sight suddenly shrink into their shells and clubs like Real Madrid, for example, who we've all been writing off for weeks, decide that they're going to turn up again. So right. it's, it's a hard one to call. Well, they'll be turning up to Pont de Prince on Tuesday, will Real Madrid take on a PSG side that is without... Neymar and we were not sure about Mbappé. They certainly didn't have him in their lineup when they beat Troyes on the weekend. I think the expectation is that Mbappé is going to be fit. Okay, he's got an, an ankle issue, but I don't think it's anything too serious. It was a match that was exciting because Timothy Ware came on for PSG. Timothy, son of George Ware, as Juliana Ron was pointing out, it's the first head of state son to play in the French top flight. <laughs> Twenty twenty-three years after his father's last oh, really? appearance for PSG. How, did, how, how many minutes did he get? Got about eleven, I think. And how so did he look? Uh, he looked all right. I think he. I think he had one opportunity to to, to score and the Is he a forward? It. He is a forward. Okay. Yes, He'd a USA Youth International. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. But interestingly, his Wikipedia page says that he learned to play football from his mum, which oh. seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. But hey, he's playing for PSG. Perhaps the more relevant detail to this upcoming Champions League game is the fact that Di Maria scored again. He really seems to be flourishing now that he's finally got a place in the side. Yeah, uh, 17 goals for the season in all competitions, 13 of which have been scored in 2018. So he's one of the most in-form attacking players in Europe at the moment. Um, not only that, but when they when they beat Barcelona 4-0 last season, obviously before the, the remontada and the calamity at Camp Nou, um, he, he was the star of the show in that 4-0. He's, he scored two of the goals. He's a former Real Madrid player, so... Obviously, PSG will miss Neymar because he's a you know he's a wonderfully talented player, but he wasn't able to make the difference in the first leg. Um, and you know, Di Maria is in great form, and you know that there is a feeling with PSG that while they're clearly a more dangerous team with Neymar in because of what he's capable of doing with the ball at his feet, that they're probably a bit more coherent with with Di Maria. Um, and if you know not Di Maria, then you know they can bring in Draxler or, or whoever else. Is anyone actually expecting them to get through this tie? Well, I mean, in in Paris, they are at least you know they're at least making all the right noises. They've uh, they're rallying behind uh, a slogan, "Ensemble, on va le faire." Together, we will do it. Um, this is plastered all over their social media. They've changed their Twitter handle, so it, it no longer says Paris Saint Germain. It just says "Ensemble, on va le faire." Uh, they're encouraging all the fans to get to the ground early. A bunch of interviews in, you know, in all the newspapers, former PSG players saying, yes, we can do it. Thomas Meunier, um, the right-back, spoke after the game against Tuan. He said, look, we haven't got Neymar. It's no excuse. We are one of the top teams in Europe. We've got all these fantastic players. We can't cling on to that. Um, and there is historical precedent. March 1993, PSG lost 3-1 to Real Madrid in a UEFA Cup quarter-final first leg. Brought them back to Parc des Princes, beat them 4-1. Goals from George Weah, Valdo, David Ginola, and then a 94th minute winner from Antoine Comboire. So they have done it before, albeit in quite different circumstances. And many years ago. Mm. Fascinating though, is Unai Emery out at the end of the season if they don't go through? Yes, and yes. Is there any chance that Zidane, who'll be there on Tuesday, could be there in a rather more long-term role? I'm sure he'll he'll be a name in the conversation. Okay, it, he's not one that's particularly being touted around at the moment. No, I mean, currently there isn't that much speculation about who might replace Emery, despite the fact that if they don't go through, he will almost certainly depart. Um, And, you know, the last two managerial appointments, PSG have had to make do with someone who was, if not second choice, then fifth, sixth or seventh choice. Laurent Blanc did a great job, couldn't do the job in Europe. You know, Emery has done a great job domestically, apart from last season, hasn't done it in Europe. So I think if, if Emery does leave, if they don't go through, they will want a... Bonafide, proper, top top coach. Arsene Wenger, perhaps, perhaps. Producer Ben just pointing out that there has been a head of state son who did play in a top division with Jay Boffroyd at Perugia. Bingo, Al Sadi Gaddafi. And Amazing. not the only curious thing about him, is it, Tom? It's not because 
um, despite the fact he, I don't think he played a single game for Perugia um, and also failed a drugs test in his first season, but that still wasn't enough for him to win the Bidoni d'Oro, the golden bin mm-hmm. for Italy's worst player, uh, because Rivaldo won it um, after a disastrous season at Milan and he was the inaugural winner of the award, edging um, Al Sadi Gaddafi into second place, I believe. Oh, nice. I wonder who's going to win it this year. Uh, they don't do it anymore. Hmm. They stopped, oh, they stopped in 2012. Oh, that's a shame. Just looked on the wiki. Ah, nice. <laughs> what an interesting career, though, Jay Bothroyd. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. I've just looked him up on Wikipedia, and the more I look, the more the more fascinating it gets. You know, on. one England cap when yep. he was playing in the Championship for Cardiff. Uh, obviously, we've mentioned the the stint at Perugia. He's now currently playing for. I need to get this right. My Japanese pronunciation is not perfect. Uh, Hokkaido Consadole Sapporo mm-hmm. in J1. Okay. Um, and as I sort of opened up his um, his international career, little tab. So he played for England, but he actually turned down the opportunity to play for Jamaica and Guyana. Uh, and he actually was the first England international in 111 years of Cardiff City. That's remarkable. And he's a very nice chap, actually, Joe. I'm not sure if you've ever had the chance to meet, interact socially with him. But when he was at Perugia, we went and had a, a chat with him. We had a, a stroll around the town. Um, and, yeah, very very nice. But nice to hear that he's still doing his football. All right, then. Now, we did mention Arsene Wenger and Arsenal. And they, of course, lost their fourth straight game. Fifth defeat in their last six in all competitions. This time away at Brighton. To no one's great surprise, I think that's fair. Paul Musselwhite saying, can we please give some credit to Brighton after their win yesterday? Best odd 40 minutes of play I've seen from the Seagulls this season and a massive turning point for us. They're seven games unbeaten now in all, which given what people expected of Chris Hooten... Maybe well, this they've season. ridden the dip, haven't they? They mm. had that, that drop in form earlier in the season and everybody said, you know what, Brighton, have, they've kind of reached their, their, their level, that's it, now they're just going to plummet to the end of the season and they'll probably end up going down. But they haven't. They've come out of it and Chris Hewton's got that side. I know it's, it's kind of cliche to say that they're well organised, but they all know what they're expected to do. You know, as you're saying, it was particularly the first half, they played so well mm. uh, against Arsenal. That they just it, it just all seems to be coming together. He took over Chris Hewton when they were 21st in the Champions after Sammy Hippie had been there. And now they're in the top half of the Premier League table. They're, what, seven points off the, the bottom three. Might, depending on what happens in, in Crystal Palace, it could, could go a bit closer than that. But they're just doing... They look comfortable. They look like they they belong there. And, and given where the clubs come from, given the history of, of the club and the fact that they nearly went out of business, to, to get to this position and to do it in such a... A sort of understated way. There's no fanfare. You look at the other clubs that came up, and there's Rafa Benitez with his sort of glittering career, and then you've got David Wagner and all the kind of personality that that comes with him. But Chris Hewton's just gone under the radar, got them really well organised. They've done it on a really solid footing, and it's just it's just a, a nice way to see. They were in a way. It reminds me of Burnley. It's got that kind of sensible, pragmatic approach, which is um, which seems to be bearing fruit. Indeed. Anyone spent, else a Brighton fan here? Spent a lot more than Burnley, to be fair. He mm. has he has had uh, a bit of Reese. I know you're not saying that's a particular part of the argument, but he has had he has been backed. I like Chris Hewton though. I mean, they're still not big spenders. No, 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 no. no, 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 no certainly not. not certainly no. not top half of the table spenders. No, no. no record no. signing Jurgen Lukaku. He didn't get off the bench against yeah. Arsenal. Yeah, didn't didn't was, need him. Oh yeah, I was going to say that actually. Um, but yeah, just in terms of um, of Chris Hewton. It's just an impressive character, I think. I, I quite like um, in a in a world of personality and, and ego at times. Um, he he just seems immune to all that, um, and I really quite admire him for that. But he, do, he does have personality, though. Of course, he does. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying he doesn't, but he's not the type of manager who you know is likely to to make an ISO cam on the touchline particularly interesting. And Glenn Murray keeps banging them in six in six. I also, think, yeah. so does Louis on, the, Dunk, on the plane to Russia. Time, <laughs> Why not? But this time at the right end, Dunk. Yes, Lewis Duncan scoring goal at the right end. Shocker. Mm. All right. I think he said afterwards, oh, I'm now on minus three overall this season. <laughs> so he's, he's inching towards parity. Oh, that's sweet. Um, we laugh, but Arsenal fans were in tears about this, Kelly. In tears with you We did on have an Arsenal Five fan Live. in tears, uh, yeah, right at the end of it last night. He was mm. very upset. He was in the car with his nephew, who was also very upset, oh. because he feels that the players don't understand what it means uh, to the supporters of the club. Well, apparently Arsenal players were in tears after Thursday's I defeat to so. Man City. That was according to David Hintness' report in The Guardian. Fascinating article. I have to say that City game was one of the funniest things I've seen in ages. The way that it just the way Arsenal players kept falling over in 
at it in opportune moments. It was, if you weren't an Arsenal fan, it was comedy gold. You kind of, you tuned in for that and you were richly rewarded. Well, I was working on the game and I uh, knew, I knew that the people, that people were tuning in to see what was going to happen with Arsenal. And because they're exactly that and because nobody was there because the weather was bad because but there'd been a lot of tickets we were talking to a few Arsenal fans beforehand and they were saying look it's going to be empty this isn't this isn't the weather they were going on on the ticket exchange websites they like 100 pound tickets were going for 20 30 quid they were struggling to get rid of them there was never going to be a big crowd at the Emirates for that game against Manchester City the weather may have added to it but there were never going to be a lot of Arsenal fans there and just when you when you got there you suddenly realized because we got our backs to the ground you turn around five minutes before kickoff, and you're like, "Where is everybody?" You could you could see the cannons on the seat. It was it was extraordinary, and you know that people are tuning in just to see how far Arsenal are going to fall. And I think that's the thing for for Arsenal fans is that they feel like they are the butt of everybody's jokes, and that's painful. That's a horrible thing to feel. And it's but it but it's also but it's also true. That's what people are tuning in to see. Well, I, I was at that game as well, the Arsenal Man City game, and I read it was both of you. That was. Yeah. Double whammy, crowd, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, Not, we, pretty much. We don't count for tickets sold, though, if we yeah. were working. Fifty-eight thousand of the tickets sold. Yeah, mm. I read a few match reports afterwards, and quite a few descriptions of the atmosphere as having been toxic, but it wasn't toxic. I mean, I think Arsenal, and I think the, the Emirates were almost beyond toxic. Yeah, half half the seats didn't have people sitting in them. Toxic suggests a full stadium of fans baying for the manager's blood, and I think mm. Arsenal have, have just moved beyond that. It was just totally apathetic. Bit yeah. of booing, bit of Wenger out, bit of you're not fit to wear the shirt. Do you know what? No planes well? at this point. We did a massive Arsenal thing on on Thursday, and I feel sure we'll be doing them as, as the weeks progress. But go on, Ian. Very quickly. Do you know what? As well, Vincent Company. Um, I interviewed him to preview this this Premier League game against Arsenal, and he told me that he believed that it would be the most difficult game of Manchester City's season. He actually said that he believed uh, City would be facing a wounded animal in Arsenal. So I imagine he was probably as disappointed as those Arsenal mm. fans at, at the quality of their display as well. All right. Well, of course, that Thursday night game undoubtedly had an impact on their performance down at the Amex. Uh, Arsene, let me get this right, I think he was complaining about heavy legs so they couldn't put on their trousers or something like that <laughs> afterwards. I just stopped he- listening. Here's a question from uh, Jason Robson. On a scale of 1 to 10, what are the chances of Burnley finishing above Arsenal, Kelly? It's not the most unlikely of scenarios, given that Burnley have actually got quite a decent run of fixtures between now and the end of the season. There's only five points between them and penultimate weekend of the season, Arsenal against Burnley at the Emirates. Bang. And what happened when they played each other at Turf Moor? Um, Sanchez got a very late controversial penalty from memory. Um, I think it was 1-0, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. It was. Wow, that's one to keep an eye on, eh? Uh, still gas left in that particular explosion. Of course, Arsenal facing Milan on Thursday night. As I mentioned, we'll be talking about that in Golazzo. Uh, big round of Europa League fixtures on the way. We're going to be talking about more from the Premier League, though, after this. Listeners, starting up the Totally Football Show was a hairy business. Fortunately, Cornerstone have been with us every step of the way. Why? Because they're in the business of making hairy things smooth, like your face. Cornerstone's award-winning blades will give you the smoothest shave possible. And their range of balms, creams and exfoliators are all environmentally friendly, alcohol-free and suitable for the most sensitive skin. Head to cornerstone.co.uk slash totally to see the range for yourself, get £10 off your first order and have it delivered right to your door. And you'll find out why tens of thousands of men have switched over to Cornerstone. Tom, you've got a book out. Well, I will have a book out in two months' time, yes. 3rd of May? 3rd of May, What's yes. What's it called? Do You Speak Football? Oh, a, is it? A glossary of football words and phrases from around the world. Mm. Par exemple? Um, that's not one of them. <laughs> that's not one of them. That is not one of them. Uh, there's one I quite like. There's a Hungarian term, um, lepkevadas. Oh, yeah. Which means butterfly hunter. And a butterfly hunter is a goalkeeper who yeah. flaps at crosses and yeah, high that's balls. That's exactly oh, the same I in like Italian. That. Mm. Yeah, so well, there's, you there's go a, there's hunting a, butterflies. Mm, there's a similar, yeah. similar in um, I think Argentina as well. There's oh, a really? Similar expression, okay. So yeah. Oh, lovely. There's one. I like uh, Julian Iran was mentioning well, le petit pont. Yes, which the means nutmeg. Yeah, they make plenty. a little bridge that plays legs. Interestingly, uh, 
when you knock the ball past the player on one side and collect it on the other, yep. that is known as a grand pont in French. A big a bridge. A big bridge. And it's, I've always found it strange that we don't have a name for that piece of skill in English. And it's one of the most common and most straightforward bits of football skill. Like in Spanish, it's an autopass. In Brazil, they call it a dribble de vaca, like a cow dribble. We just call it knocking it past someone and getting it on the other side. I think never dribble. thought, I think, I think never better thought to not name. to have a name than to call it a cow dribble. I like cow dribble. I remember do we, cow dribble. Do we know the etymology of nutmeg? Well, in, there's in many different football. theories, but Tom, I bet you've researched this. I have researched this. Um, I can't claim I can't lay claim to this theory myself. There's a guy called Peter Seddon who wrote a book about the language of British football, and his theory is that it came from the nutmeg trade in the second half of the 19th century when unscrupulous American nutmeg traders would dilute their sacks of nutmeg with wood shavings, ship them across the Atlantic, um, and people who'd purchased their nutmeg would then find that they'd had this sort of like low-quality nutmeg that had been diluted. Slip something past them, essentially. Essentially, and, and people say, oh, you've been nutmegged, and that apparently... Is where it comes from. At least that's the most compelling argument that I've. That's come the across. most compelling. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Well, the other ones are like, oh, it, it, nutmeg rhymes with leg. Yeah. In it, so like nutmeg leg. That's definitely worse. Mm. Yeah. That is. Yeah. I remember. I don't know if this is a football term as such, but I remember Van Gaal uh, giving a press conference at United. I forget what game it was, and the uh, the question came, how important is this game? And he turned around and said, it's death or the gladioli, and literally everyone in the room, um, including the United press officer just looked at him very, very blankly. Um, I don't know if that's a football Did he explain though. it? I can't remember. Sounds like a Smith album, doesn't it? He, he must have... He, I think we all just researched it when he left the room. It basically meant it was, like, very, very important. Mm. Um, it had something to do with Gladioli being given something in Holland. I should have really known no, this no, before that's I good like that. the story. I like the, Gladius you know, the is Latin for it. sword. Right, if, okay. you, if you give me a sec, I can... Um... But, but I, I, one, fair, my favourite Dutch, probably the only one I know, so it does rank as my favourite, is the, the chocolate leg business. When they describe a player as having a chocolate leg. Chocolade bean. Oh, there you go. Yes, there it is. In 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 the original the original Dutch. Yes, chocolate leg for a player's weaker foot. Mm. So Death or Gladioli, it was uh, it was popularised by a Dutch cyclist, Jerry Netterman, um, and he referred to it in reference to the fact that when cyclists win races, they are presented with flowers. And I think the original death or gladioli link goes back to Roman gladiators. There were stories about victorious gladiators being garlanded with gladioli. I'm just going to say at this point that gladioli is, is suspiciously close to the Latin for a gladiator anyway. Well, mm. so, there it is. Yeah, mm. and, and sword. Gladius is sword. Oh, well, there you go, which I guess Hence is where gladiator. gladiators... Right. Are you still with us, listeners? <laughs> anyway, that book's coming out on the 3rd of May. Hey, look at this. We're going to be giving away a copy on a forthcoming Totally Football quiz, which, Kelly, I don't know if you know about this, every Friday at half past 12 GMT. It's live at facebook.com slash the Totally Football Show. Ian, if you don't happen to catch it, although I can't think of any reason why you shouldn't, it's still worth watching back because it's full of fascinating questions that you can wheel out in conversations such as this often. People be amazed by your erudition. I like doing that. Yes. Yeah, I do like sort of passing the time with random football quizzes. We had a, for example, you remember the famous Man United-Fulham game with the 81 crosses yes. under David Moyes? Yes. So our first question last Friday was, who was the only starting outfield player that day not to make a cross in the famous game of the 81 crosses? Wow. I'll reveal the answer at the end of this show, shall I? Which is actually a lot closer than you think because time has run away from us a little bit and we've still got loads of things to talk about, like Barcelona pretty much showing up the Spanish title. Looked like they may have had a bit of a wobble when they drew against Las Palmas midweek. But Messi, with a direct free kick for the third match in a row, impressive, no? A 1-0 win against Atletico Madrid. His 600th goal. It was his 600th goal. And that is now 34 games without losing in the league for Barcelona, they are four away from the all-time record. That's across two seasons. Uh, Real Madrid won 3-1 against Gaddafi. Luka Modric has been charged with perjury in a money case. But in better news, him and Tony Cruz are back in training. Ah. And uh, even if they don't start against PSG, it's looking like they will at least be on the bench. Well, so he'll be approaching the bench in another sense. Hey. 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 Right. In a word, how good do you think McTominay is? I'm asking for Mike Yadav. Ian, you've seen him at Manchester United. McTominay, a, a promising player? 
Promising is, is a good word. You said it in a word a moment ago. Promising is a good word. We need to see more of him yet, but uh, it's been an impressive start from him, certainly. Right, OK. Joseph Bradfield, I'm just catching up on the pod, I'm sorry, but anyone who discusses their favourite snowbound games without mentioning Tromso against Chelsea is either lying or tremendously forgetful. Tromso Chelsea, which sounded a little bit like this. A game that took place deep inside the Arctic Circle at the home of the most northerly top flight team in the world. Pre-Roman Abramovich Chelsea taking on Norwegian club Tromso, part-timers who picked up only their second ever win in Europe, I believe. Now, I've nicked all that information from an excellent piece on uh, the set pieces, notable website, written by Stephen Rear. And, Joseph, if, if you're not familiar with that, go and have a read of that. It's a terrific story of how that Viali, that Rude Hullet managed Chelsea, Viali doing wondrous things in the snow, uh, got beaten 3-2 by Tromso, uh, but everyone was happy because Chelsea won 7-1 at the bridge in the return. So anyway, uh, now, one or two other things we should discuss before we finish up today. Championship, lots of games postponed there due to the weather, and Steve Cottrell got fired from Birmingham after losing 2-1 at Forest. That's their fifth defeat in a row. Former Birmingham boss, Gary Rowett has Derby in fifth, although they also lost 2-1 this weekend. At home to Fulham, the Cottagers have now moved up to fourth now. Yeah. And there was another goal from Ryan Sessignon. More. Such a good, when you were talking about McTominay earlier oh, yeah. and saying promising, Sessignon delivering on his promise. And he's doing it at Fulham, he's doing it at the Championship, he's doing it. So, I've talked about him before. I just think he's brilliant. Can't get enough of you talking about Ryan Sessignon, mm. Kelly. Anyway, we'll have. Plenty of Championship and Football League chat in Tuesday's Totally Football League show with Ian McIntosh and The Gang. China, Yannick Carrasco and Nicolas Gaetan out of Atletico Madrid making their debut for Dalian Yifang. How did it go, Tom? I don't know. I'm here to tell you not well. They lost 8-0 to Shanghai. What? Yeah, 8-0. Oscar scored a hat-trick for Shanghai, a.k.a. the Red Eagles. Hulk? Hooky got a pen as well. In other Chinese football news, did you see the brilliant use of VAR there? No, I didn't. Okay, so uh, basically to compress this as much as possible, because it went on for about five minutes. So there was an incident, and they spent a minute and a half deciding whether it was a penalty incident, and then Lavezzi was allowed to approach the, the, the spot and place the ball and prepare to take a skip. But hang on, no, the referee's decided that he's going to go back to VAR for a second time, and you get cutaways to the people you know, in the VAR studio, and they're looking, and he's looking at a separate monitor on the side of the thing. Anyway, after close to four minutes, Lovetti was given the OK to go ahead and take the kick, which, of course, was saved by that point, and the game ended 1-1. Do you, the, do you get the feeling they've briefed media more than they've briefed referees about VAR? Possibly so. Um, in Italy... Two games played on Saturday, we mentioned those before, but then all of Sunday's matches suspended after Davide Astori's death, uh, the news breaking of that on Sunday morning in Italy, and the decision immediate and unanimous. Uh, in the Premier League, meanwhile, there are some games that we haven't discussed yet down at the bottom of the table, where West Brom are eight points now from safety after losing at Watford. Alan Pardew still in a job, producer Ben? Still in a job. Leicester had a 1-1 draw with Bournemouth. Maris, it was his first ever goal from a direct free kick, and it was very special, wasn't it? Um, I totally and utterly blame the placement of the wall, whether that was Begovic's fault or whether it was the player's fault moving, but it, it, looked, it looked really poor, that wall. But having, having been presented with that gap, oh, yeah, Maris exploited yeah. it quite brilliantly. Yeah, oh, OK. Bye. Did you know Saints drawing with Stoke, and they are both very much in the relegation battle, Stoke... One point from safety currently, Saints just above the drop. If those teams go down, next season will be the first ever Premier League campaign without the guarantee of a side in red and white stripes. Did you know that, Kelly? I didn't know that. I, I should have paid more attention. Sheffield United, of course, have red and white stripes, but they're two points outside the playoff positions in the Championship. Sunderland, also in the Championship, very much well, heading in the opposite not coming up. direction. And currently, and this is interesting, actually, in terms of this might be for your next book, how shirts, how jersey designs reflect mm, yeah, why not? teams' performances. All of the current bottom six in the Premier League have what, Tom? Stripey shirts. Stripey shirts. No one in the top nine, Tom. Has stripey shirts. It's true. All right. Do uh, Southampton, do yes. we include them as a stripey shirted team given this season's home kit, which is not strictly um, stripey? It's a bit like of a thirds, thirds yeah. ensemble. They're probably They're aware stripes. of the... Broad, broad stripes, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know, Tom. 
May they come to rue that decision. Or, Time will tell. Or maybe that could be the one thing that saves them. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Stay tuned. Meantime, Swansea, not in stripes, have now climbed significantly above the drop zone. Well, three points. Uh, thanks to their 4-1 win against West Ham, seventh consecutive home win for Swansea. More brilliant post-game from Carlos Carvalhal. While David Moyes was left to talk about a performance so embarrassing it was difficult to assess, we thought we could just stroll about. Intriguingly, West Ham, who are three points above the relegation zone, face Everton on the final day of the season. Everton, who of course lost again this weekend, 2-1 at Burnley, are themselves in 11th place, but they're only seven points off the drop. So the question is, is Big Sam going to relegate West Ham or are West Ham going to get their revenge on Big Sam? Which, of course, would be Moyes relegating Everton. Kelly, they are playing at the London Stadium. Which means it's unlikely that Everton are going to get the win, but I don't think Everton will go down. No. So I don't think they'll be relegating him. OK. West Ham? Mm, no, because okay. I think they've, they've... Just because there are three teams worse than them. That's a lot less exciting than I thought it was going to be. Apologies. No I, I think problem. we can draw a line now. Um, I think we've actually getting to the point where we can draw a line. What, between Swansea? Palace and Southampton? Or below West Ham? No, below Everton for me. I think, oh, yeah, I think any, anyone now within six points. Six. Yeah, maybe even Bournemouth are safe now. But, you know, we're getting to that point where we're saying, oh, 11 teams could go down. Hmm. I, think it's, I think it's taking shape finally now. You've now got eight from yeah. Swansea down. Who yeah. Everyone within three points of the drop. Seem fair to you, Tom? I mean, it's it's so close, the relegation battle this season. It, it kind of feels like for those teams who are down there, the key thing will be making sure that if they are going to have a run of good results, they do it at the right time, that they don't do it too now. soon. <laughs> do it now, basically. But I mean, like, you you know, there's, there is, what, seven points separating 10th place and 18th. And as we've seen in, in recent weeks from from Brighton and from Bournemouth and earlier in the season from West Ham, OK, they've slipped back a bit now. It only takes a couple of good results and suddenly you're out of it and you and you look safe, so... Probably still a few more twists and turns to come, I'd have thought. Imagine there will be. Right. Well, still to come is the answer to that trivia question I was posing before. But right now, it's time to get the odds from Paddy Power with Ian McIntosh. Thanks, James. I've got Lee Price here from Paddy Power. How are you doing, Lee? Good morning, Ian. All right. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you very much. It's a Champions League week. And Liverpool and Manchester City in pretty good shape, you'd have to say, having won uh, 5-0 and 4-0, respectively, in the first legs. What odds can we get to repeat those exact same scorelines? Yeah, two dead rubbers. I don't know what lineups they're going to go with. Liverpool in particular have got Man United on Saturday, so they might want to put the reserves out. Uh, but a 5-0 win at Anfield for Liverpool is 35-1. to uh, City have got Stoke next Monday and no cup distractions. They'll probably go for it again. 4-0 against Basel is just 7-1. to uh, United to get a nil-nil draw, by the way, against Sevilla is just ten to one, and uh, I can definitely see that happening. Hey, is there any chance at all of Porto and Basel turning this round? <laughs> um, no, uh, but if you do <laughs> fancy it, there's very long odds and a lot of money to be made. Uh, oh, so right. give me a tip if you fancy that. Let's focus on something a little tighter then: PSG against Real Madrid. What are we looking at there? Yeah, really tight this. PSG are odds on to win on the night, so that's 10 to 11. Real Madrid are 23 to 10 to win in Paris. But to qualify, it's Real Madrid we favour at 3 to 10, with PSG 11 to 5 to go through. They do just need a 2 0 win, though, and that's 3 to 1 if you fancy that. Uh, without Neymar, though, it could be a big ask. All right, back on the home front, uh, the ultimate in that doesn't suit anybody style results. Stoke and Southampton at the weekend drawing nil-nil. What can we get on them both going down? Because producer Ben tells me if they do go down, and we're assuming that Sheffield United don't come up, 2018-19 will be the first time that no red and white striped side will participate in the Premier League. <laughs> and no one wants that. No. Um, it was a pretty insipid draw nil nil neither team went for it uh, some might argue they both deserve to go down Ooh. but I don't want to alienate your listeners uh, we offer odds of 9-1 to one that both Stoke and Saints go down but it's so tight there that there's real value in betting on anyone to go down apart from West Brom of course who are 16-1 to one on so that means you have to bet £16 to win a single quid on them going down they're goners you can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Ian Irving, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you, James. Kelly Gates, thank you thank for you, being here James. today. And you, Tom Williams, that book, Do You Speak Football, out May the 3rd. May the 3rd, that's the one. Thank you, James. No problem. And the answer, Ian, did you get it? 
someone like Nemanja Vidic? Someone so like Nemanja Vidic that it was actually the Serb himself. Really? Bingo. Boom. That worked, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. I didn't actually look that up either. Scout's honour. I know, I know. Uh, that's it for today's Totally Football show. Another one will be along shortly, Thursday, after the Totally Football League show on Tuesday and Golazzo on Wednesday. Do hope you have a splendid week, everybody, and we'll speak to you soon. The Totally Football show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddyneesmedia.com. 